uh, of that university and uh, met with one brother who in secondary school was part of a Christian group where they really prayed, they prayed a lot. And uh, at university with the assignment and exam and stuff, he did not have enough time. And he said to me, ah, I wish God can be fair with me and when I'm weak, just take him to all that I've been sending to him through years, all my prayers. If the Lord can remember, I just take him to that to compensate what I cannot do now. Now, I know that's not uh, totally correct, but if there was some truth in it, then I would say the same for the prayer Christy did today. I would say, Lord, taking that what she just said to you before the preaching. Praise the Lord. Loving Father, we bless you this morning as we come to you. And as your word comes to us, we humble under your mighty hand and pray that you will have preeminence and that each one of us will decrease and Christ will increase and will be highly lifted up and exalted. Your word is already blessed, we pray that Lord bless the soil of our hearts that the word will find a fertile soil and bring forth fruits that are to your glory. Help us, Lord, guide us, inspire, lead through the ministry of the eternal spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Today, uh, the book of Revelation, part 8. The missing dimension in Pergamos, part 8. It seems to me that when uh, there's no, when a church is not problematic, amongst the seven churches, there is very little to say. But when a church is problematic, there's a lot to say about that church because not only with regard to what the Lord is saying, but also remember what we said, there were two schools of interpretation of Revelation. The historicist and the futurist. In the futurist approach, every church represents an age of the church throughout history. With that understanding, the Church of Pergamos represents the Church from the 4th century up to the 7th, 7th century. Because from the 4th century, beginning with the, uh, the year 300 AD, that where the mixture starts coming in the Church. More about that in a minute, God willing. how far we can go. Okay, let's start with the first one so that I don't waste time. I need my time. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 to 17. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, This thing says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where certain throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the soul of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcome, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who received it. Now, let's very quickly start by the end here. The Lord, the remedy for this church was not more knowledge. The remedy was to repent and to do something about the situation. I learned just this morning the difference between tolerance and toleration in English. I learned that tolerance is acceptance without compromising in the hope that the outcome will be increased knowledge better relationship and improved behavior. That's the reason why we tolerate our children. We do not just tolerate them, we do something about it, don't we? That tomorrow they won't make the same mistake. That is tolerance. That's the reason why the Bible says to bear with those who are weak. But the Lord's desire is that all of us grow to maturity. So that kind of tolerance must have a purpose. It is accepting the situation but without compromising in the hope that the outcome will be increased knowledge, better relationship with God in this case, better behavior in terms of Christianity. Paul told Timothy, if I delay, you will know how to conduct in the house of the Lord, which is the ground 
and the pillar of the truth. So there is a way of conducting the house of the Lord and that must be learned. But in the process, people are coming to the Lord, people are at different stage of their faith, of their work with the Lord. There is a good measure of tolerance, but tolerance comes with work being done and, and, and willingness to grow, to receive and to grow. Remember in the book of Acts, it says, those who gladly receive the word of God. So there is a gladness in receiving the word of God in, in order to grow in maturity, more knowledge of the Son of God and grow in faith. Toleration is also the process of acceptance but with compromising. Example. In the church of Thyatira, the Lord was not happy because they allowed a woman called Jezebel to do what she did. To uphold her own doctrine sexual immoralities and to push you know servant of God into idolatry that kind of permissive approach is toleration and that can only lead to negative impact in the long run that's the difference between tolerance and toleration at Corinth 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 the Lord was very displeased and said, even pagans don't uphold, promote this kind of immorality to the point that you haven't shown grief when a man took his father's wife. That is toleration. That's not tolerance. That's toleration. Bad things being tolerated, that displeased God. Can you see the difference between the two words? You tolerate new believers, you tolerate people who have a bit of difficulty in understanding, you passionate, in the hope that the work is being done, that we will all grow to full maturity. But toleration is tolerating what displeases God. That should not be the case. Hopefully we're learning something about that. Amen. Now, the Lord promised to the overcomer, I will give some hidden manna to eat. Well, hidden manna was for the priest only. People have their own food, and then the priest had their own hidden manna. No wonder uh, Phineas, who was uh, Aaron's grandson, I think he was, uh, was part of that priesthood and uh, quite understood how to use the javelin to stop the plague. Hidden manna is for the priest. Guess what? We are all, not only priests, but royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. The Lord wants to reveal his word to us. He wants to reveal himself to us and to reveal, to teach us his words. Because it's written, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. In verse 14, John 1, and the word was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we contemplate, we behold the glory of that word 
made flesh as the glory of the only Son. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ returns, he is called the Word of God. And he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. You cannot separate Christ from his word. None of us was ever sent to go and make Christians. No. The Lord commanded to go and make disciples. And what follows? And teach them to observe all things I have commanded. That is discipleship. Which starts with new birth and then obeying Christ and growing. Where do we find discipleship? In the church. The Bible said they persevere, notice the word persevere. In what? Number one, the apostles' doctrine. That is the apostles' teaching. And fellowship, and praise, and breaking of bread. Those were the four pillars in the church for growth. That is discipleship. No more than that. Then the Lord promised to give a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except he who receives it. It's the same with Christ himself. When he comes back, he has a name written on him, which no one knows except him. The same is happening here to the believers. A white stone. A white stone. A white stone has different meanings. All good meanings. A white stone is a reward, was a reward, but it's a very special reward. Whenever I read this, it reminds me the knighthood. When you receive that recognition, that big reward. But this one, you will receive this from God, the Almighty. With your name on it. You will be called Sir, Madam, by the decree of the Almighty God. A white stone with your name on it is a reward, very special reward. Well, there are many rewards in the Bible, crowds, lots of rewards, and then those who have taught righteousness to many will shine like stars. That's a different degree of rewards. Are we going to be teaching the righteousness of God to ourselves and to others? There is a special reward for that. Because God is holy. And we need to teach ourselves and our fellow brethren the fear of the Lord. Uphold his holiness in his house. And there is a special reward for that. The white stone is also an invitation. An invitation. Blessed are those who are invited 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ah, by invitation only. Invitation from the Almighty God to you and I. The Bible says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. A white stone. But a white stone is also uh, a proof, evidence of Acquittal? Acquittal? I don't know. Acquittal. Put it over on the Okay, good. Acquittal in French. When you are acquitted by the judge, they would give you that as a token, as evidence that you've been completely discharged for all accusations. What does the Bible say? He wiped out the handwritten condemnation sentence, decision that was against us and contrary to us and nailed it to the cross white stone the Lord in that day will give it to those who will love his appearing okay we can now go upwards back now you remember in the introduction when we looked at the key message and purpose. We looked at different stages of the church throughout the ages. Now, with regard to the Bible prophecy, the early church, when we speak of the early church, we refer to the apostles and apostolic fathers. Now, apostolic fathers are not Catholic fathers. Now, apostolic fathers relates to those church leaders who had been in contact with the apostles, such as Polycarp. For some 300 years, the church did integrate Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. Those believers took prophecy literally. They expected Christ's return to precede a time of blessing promised in the Old Testament before the end of the world. Later on came Reformation. A review of commentary on the book of Revelation shows a shift in understanding prophecy. That shift occurred after early centuries. The apostles of God, the apostolic fathers of God, something else is happening now. Just before and around the Reformation and then mixture beyond. I've asked myself this question. Because the period just before Reformation and uh, around Reformation and after a very strange phenomenon take play, took place that is uh, known as scholasticism, that is intellectuals, theories, etc. Coming. The whole Christianity, the whole biblical truth became a matter of preference and own cleverness and intellectual credentials. If you were more eloquent, your view was most likely to be the most received. 
question. Is scholasticism to blame or was this the consequence of spiritual mixed marriage with paganism? Mm. Let me add something to the question. Or both. Was it the fact that people begin to force, to impose their own ideas on scriptures? Or was that the result of the mixture, church and paganism? I say both, but the latter explained the former. It was their role belonging to paganism and Greek philosophy that led them to begin to want to understand, to interpret the Jewish scripture with a Greek mind. To understand the God of Israel with a polistic mind. Problem. Scholasticism. Christian thinkers introduced something in an attempt to contemplate, I've already said that, we can pass that. For example, John Calvin's attempt to recontextualize the gospel ended up being a work of defining it. Did I say define? Redefine it. The word of God needs to be contextualized. We need to recontextualize. We're not all Jewish people. We need to recontextualize. Yeah, that ended up being a redefinition of what the gospel is. There was now growing confusion as a result of that. Was the church a continuity of Israel? Or had the church replaced Israel? All Saturday because of those conflicts. Uprooting the Christian faith from its roots. Understanding the Bible in a disconnected way from its roots. Now, very slowly, people start introducing something different. Is the church a continuation of Israel or has the church replaced? Guess what? This day, you have encyclopedias of people defending the fact that, according to them, the church has replaced Israel. But it started there. What would come in 100 years ahead? What is being prepared now? Because what we see now started at the time of Reformation. And then Islam has hijacked that now. You have, uh, how is he calling it? Uh, Christian Palestinianism. The Lord says salvation is of the This problem could only have come about as people try to disconnect Christianity and scriptures from its Jewish roots. In doing so, a door was also open for all sorts of mixture in the name of unity. Another example is Augustine of Hippo, his efforts to fight for the unity of the church. 
According to him, the church is holy no matter how unholy the men who lead it. In that sense, the Roman Catholic Church was holy despite the Spanish Inquisition, wars, corruption, the Middle Age, morality, religious syncretism, its role in the Holocaust, and attitude towards slavery and colonization. It's okay. The Church is still holy. The Protestant Reformation, instead of going back to the New Testament, went back to Augustine of Hippo. In fact, John Calvin is sometimes referred to as the Protestant Pope because he now forced his own model, his own thinking. He was a lawyer and decided to become a theologian with that low mindset and had to enforce, impress on the Bible his own mind. Nothing to do with the roots of the Jewish scripture. Problems. Then, brilliant intellectual wrote a lot. Most of them, Augustine, all of them, they wrote a lot. And because they were sound, bright mind, no one could disprove. Nobody could stand against them. And more, I'm not discounting Martin Luther himself. Yes, he went out of Catholicism, but with a lot of Catholicism in him. Everywhere. Okay. What was the problem here? Was the doctrine of Balaam not coming back to that? Because last time we extensively, you know, looked at that uh, from Numbers 23, 24, and 25. We're not coming to that. But to summarize, what is the doctrine of Balaam today? The doctrine of Balaam is the effort to work against the purpose of God for his people, in summary. The doctrine of Balaam is cupidity, money. The doctrine of Balaam is rebellion. Is posing as a true prophet. Remember, everything Balaam did, he said to Balak, I'm going to consult God first. But he did not do anything of what God told him. God told him, You cannot curse what I have blessed. You can't do that. Your divination sorcery cannot do anything against my people. But still, he went to do something different. Consulting God and doing something different. That's the doctrine of Bible, in summary. Now the next one. Verse 15, Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Remember what we said the other day? God is love, but there are things God hates. Could sound politically incorrect. God is love, yes, but there are things God hates. In fact, in the book of Proverbs of Ecclesiastes, there are six or seven things there God hates. He said that He hates. So there are things the Lord hates. 
all to do with sin and unrighteousness. So today we focus a little bit for some time on the doctrine of the Nicolaitans at the same time as looking at the testimony in history that will happen when you look at the church in Pergamos. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, what is it? This is an attempt to replicate the order of Aaronic priesthood in the church. It is a clerical classification of specially ordained priests. All the world religions have two things in common. The first one, they have a priesthood headquarter with an earthly representative. Secondly, they all preach salvation by work and allegiance to their organization. Jesus Christ is now in heaven and we are all his servant, his priest, royal priesthood. Our headquarter is in heaven. Jesus Christ representative, the Holy Spirit. Our headquarter in heaven. classification of a special category of people who have been ordained, who have some special power, who have power over people. Contrast with uh, the biblical servanthood where we are called to humbly and faithfully serve the Almighty God and His Church not lording over people. It's very clear, you can look at around and you will see that uh, this kind of priesthood like in the days of Aaron they have special garments. Special power, even allegedly power to transform bread and wine into the actual body of Christ, and that is called Eucharist, where a man with special power is able to transform wine and, and, and bread into the actual body of Christ through special power. Christ came as high priest of the things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. That's our high priest. 
According to 1 Peter 2.9, we are all a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Furthermore, every believer is a saint. Every believer, hello saints. Oh, Every believer is a saint from the day they receive Christ and were born again. Okay. Let's look at a different definition then of saints. According to the study conducted by the BBC on Catholicism, there are four steps required for an individual to become a saint in the eyes of the Vatican. Remember, we're talking about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We're talking about the replacement of God things with human-made things. We're talking about an earthly priesthood here. According to a study by the BBC, there are four steps required for an individual to become a saint in the eyes of the Vatican. Step one, to wait at least five years after death. That is, you must be dead to be declared a saint. <laughs> I can see the anger on your face and the frustration. But the people say it doesn't matter, let us unite us, all of us, you know. It's okay. Let's let's preach unity, ecumenical. Step two. You have to become a servant of God. Okay. That is, post-mortem, after one has died, there will be an investigation around your life, the way you lived your life. And the finding will be part of the process of the sainthood. Step three. You need to show proof of a life of heroic virtue. That is, based on the congregation's approval, the Pope will decide to call the candidates venerable. Venerable. So, that's the first step. You've been received, you're making progress. While watching in the tomb, by the way. But you are called venerable. After all the preliminary work that I've just mentioned here. That is step three. And that's the Pope decision to put you in that position. Then step four, there has to be verified miracles. That is, people must testify that as they prayed to you or called on your intercession, a miracle had occurred. as a proof that you are in reality in the presence of God interceding for people. Number one, 
Wait at least five years. Number two, become a servant of God. Number three, show proof of a life of heroic virtue. Number four, verify miracle. Then number five, canonization, which is now the Pope declaring a deceased person a saint. Okay. Now, very quick check on the Bible, very quickly. Some of you will know this. Um, I'll just quote this quickly for you. Act 9.32 Peter came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Those were alive. And they were called saints, just believers. Romans 15, verse 25 and 26 Distribution was made to the saints, to the poor saints, even poor. To the poor saints in Jerusalem, they were alive. 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Collection was to be made for the saints. 2 Corinthians 1, 1. Mention all the saints which are in all Achaia. Ephesians 1, 1. To the saints which are in Ephesus, the book, the letter was addressed. Philippians 1, 1. To all the saints which are in Philippi, to them the epistle was written. Colossians 1 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, they were all alive. Philemon 1 5, love toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Hebrews 6 10, the love which you've shown toward the saints. What do we do with this contradiction? Should we just ignore all that? Where the Bible has been completely. Betrayed in the name of unity to preserve unity. Which unity? The only unity to be preserved in the Bible is the unity in the truth maintained by the Holy Spirit under the headship of Jesus Christ. No other unity. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In fact, Christ has redeemed us by his blood and has made us kings and priests unto our gods. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter declared in Acts 4.12, There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. And Paul wrote, There is only one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. Oh. Increasingly, we hear something called redemptrix. Mary called redemptrix. There is only one mediator between God and man. No other. One intercessor, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us before the Father. No other mediation. Anything else? Human fabrication. How tragic. Million, if not billion, are being misled. Happening. Willingly, readily. 
rather than speaking to the word of God. If you abide in my word, says the Lord, you are my disciple indeed. And then what? That's John 8, 31. And then 32? You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You see, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. Then verse 32, you will know the truth. You abide in his word, he reveals his truth to you, and you will be free from bondage and lies and deception. 36 John 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. My prayer this morning is that we all be freed from deception. But only if we abide in his word. Matthew 23 verse 9, do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ taught us how to pray. Our father who art in heaven. Do not call anyone father. In this spiritual sense, in the sense of an earthy priesthood, in the sense of a high priest on earth, do not call anyone. Father, one is your father, is in heaven. Mm. Testimony from history. The word Pope from the Latin Papa, meaning father, is also referred to as the Holy Father. Yet the Bible warns us that we should call no man our father on earth. For one is our father in heaven. Matthew 23, verse 9. Quotable quotes. Pope Innocent III, who is known as the father of the Inquisition, said, The Pope holdeth place on earth not simply of man, but of the true God. That a Pope himself said that. Pope Innocent III. Have the reference there if you need it. Decretor of Gregory the Ninth, Book One, Chapter Three. Pope Nicola, I am in all above all, so that God Himself and I, the Vicar of God, had both one consistory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. I then, being above all. Seem by this reason to be above all God. That's Pope Nicholas. Pope Boniface VIII. We declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Pope Clement VI. No man outside obedience to the Pope of Rome can ultimately be saved. The doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Earthly 
priesthood. None of these things stand when scrutinized in the light of the Bible. None of these things. But we are asked to unite or to import some practice, you know, to be tolerant in the name of unity and focus on what unites us, focus on what we agree on. Doctrine. Doctrine. In the book of Revelation, the Lord has problems with strange doctrines. Everywhere. The word doctrine is the Greek word didaskalia. Didaskalia. Didactic teaching. Which means instruction, learning, teaching. As clearly stated in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired of God. Guess what? What's the first element? And profitable for doctrine. Doctrine. Teaching. The word doctrine is used 36 times in the Bible. First, in the book of Job, chapter 11, verse 4, and last in the book of Revelation 2.24. The word doctrine appears three times in the book of Revelation. 214, 215, 224 as a warning. In Revelation, the word doctrines appears to highlight ungodly doctrines, to warn us against false doctrine. And you see, the Bible gives us many types of doctrines. See, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of demons. And then the apostles' doctrine, and then the doctrine of Christ, and then the pure doctrine. It's very important that we make a difference. Who will do that? The church has the responsibility to teach people to make a difference between to discern between the pure, the impure, the clean, the unclean, the holy and the unholy. Distinguish between uh, cunningly devised fables and the pure doctrine of God. It's the church responsibility. People are not just left to their device to do whatever they want to do, whatever they want to think. Now, it's the church responsibility to make sure. Remember Act 2 14, 42? They persevered in the apostles' doctrine. They delight to be taught the biblical doctrine in order to distinguish. Remember what happened in Galatia? Whenever Paul was teaching, some other people who came into the church by stealth came and teach something else. Paul really suffered. And then Paul began to speak of another gospel. Another Jesus, another spirit. Why people have their own cosmic Jesus, Jesus of their own mind, not necessarily here. In Islam, there is a, a, a character called Isa, 
And people say, oh, you see, Jesus is recognizing Israel. Let's just unite. But in Israel, they say, God has no son. What does the Bible say? The spirit of the Antichrist, he who denied that God has a son, is the spirit of the Antichrist. Oh, no, that's okay. That's too harsh. Let's just unite, you know, on what unites us, what we agree on. Oh, We were born again of the incorruptible seed, the living and eternal word of God. First Peter 1.23 If we were born of the word of God, the incorruptible seed, the same will maintain us in the faith. For faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. The word of God is sharp, is living, is powerful than any two-edged sword. Is living, able to separate between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Why? Because the word of God has built in power to transform life. Some people have read, have come to Christ by reading the Bible on their own. Sincerely, in serious quest for salvation, they've met Christ in His Word. We cannot afford to replace the Word of God or to put it in competition with man made philosophy. Second John chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ. That is the teaching of Christ. Has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10. Very politically incorrect. 2 John chapter 1 verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him. There is more. Do not greet him. That's radical. That's how serious these things are. The doctrine of Christ must be taught, received, understood, uphold, promoted in his house. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 warns us against some people who will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirit and to the doctrine of demons. You see the contrast? Abide in the doctrine of Christ, and some will depart and give themselves the doctrines of demons. So there are doctrines of demons and the doctrine of Christ. The church has the responsibility to teach these things. Okay, let's go back to history. Around the year 300 AD, the church was persecuted. Christians were hated and haunted by Roman emperors, beginning with Nero in the first century and ending with Diocletian at the start of the fourth century. By 313 AD, 
the face of Christianity will be transformed when the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great won his famous Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. The victory will ultimately make him the sole Emperor of Rome. Before that battle, he claimed he had seen a vision of a cross on the sun and heard a voice telling him, in this side, conquer. With that symbol, he went forth and conquered his enemies. A short time later, he signed the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, granting tolerance and protection to Christians. With the emperor conversion, Christianity would eventually become the state's religion. But in 331 AD, he signed another edict that all those who had not come under the authority of Rome ought to be arrested. Thus, their records, churches, etc. were burned. How could a true Christian possibly persecute other fellow believers? The church was trapped because of seeking protection. That wasn't the case in the New Testament. When the church was persecuted, they gathered together, they cried out to the Lord, Lord, see their threats. And the place they were assembled shook. The Lord was with them because they trusted the Lord. They did not look to the government for protection. This is the first strategy. Tragedy. It's been suggested that Constantine's belief was divided. I have this quote from Dave Hans. As the head of the pagan priesthood, Constantine was the Pontifex Maximus and needed a similar title as the head of the Christian church. The Christians honored him as Bishop of Bishops, while Constantine called himself Vicarius Christi. That is, not Christi, Vicarus Christi, Vicar of Christ. True Christians saw this syncretism as an apostate church. Now, Constantine will begin to persecute all those who will oppose his Catholic or universal faith. It has been said that after his edit in 331 AD, more Christians were persecuted and killed than before his conversion. At the time of his decline, the bishops of Rome rose and took for themselves Constantine's title, including Vicar of Christ, that is, Substitute of Christ. I've just told you that Christ's representative on earth is the Holy Spirit. Thomas Hobbes, who was an English philosopher, wrote in 1691, if a man considers the original of this great ecclesiastical dominion, remember the doctrine of Nicolaitans, he will easily perceive that the papacy is no other than the ghost of the deceased, the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon 
the grave thereof. Continuation. In the 13th century, a great effort was made to put the scripture out of people's reach and keep people from its knowledge. It has been said that the Pope Innocent III could be considered as one of the two true founders of the Inquisition. The Inquisition did not begin because of witches in Europe or because of a crusade against Muslims, lies, but because of Bible-believing Christians known as Albigenses. They were accused, we can skip that, it's not important. In 1206 AD, that group of Christians known as Albigenses confessed that the Church of Rome was not the spouse of Christ, but the Church of Confusion, drunk with the blood of the martyrs. The Church of Rome is neither good nor holy, nor established by Jesus Christ. That's what they died for. In 1207 AD, the leader of this group, the Albigenses, debated a Catholic scholar. Humiliated by his failure, that man calls Dominic, you know the Dominican order in Catholicism, Dominic promised slavery and death to them. He then formed the order of the Dominican. You hear that? This is the origin of it. To hunt Christians. In 1283 AD, Pope Gregory VIII established the Inquisition as the official church doctrine. Notice doctrine. Thus began some 600 years of bloodshed against Bible believers. It has been said that the light brought by the scripture made Rome's heresy plain. According to John Dowling, it is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 million of human families have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors for standing for the truth of the Bible. They were slaughtered. Should we just give up? What about in the Latin and all those? Should we just give up today in the name of unity and acceptance? Thus, it is wrongly believed that Roman Catholicism was the only form of Christianity up to Reformation. Wrong. Many groups of Christians refused to submit to Rome and sought to follow God's word as their final authority. Amongst them were the Albigenses and the Waldenses. Later on, John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible in English, had his followers known as the Lollards. He trained them and sent them to preach the gospel. As England was still a Catholic country, many of the Lord suffered greatly and were burned with the scripture they found on them. John Wycliffe rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation. He rejected it. Forty-four years after he died, instructions from Rome were given for his bone to be dug up and burned as well as all his writings. And finally, his ashes thrown into the river. 
he was also cursed. So this is the man who upheld the Bible, taught people the truth of God, is now killed, burned, and his ashes cursed. The doctrine of Baal. Cursing what God has blessed. On that day, we shall see him in a very good position before his blessed Savior. The, the curse prevails nothing. They can kill the body, they can do nothing to the soul. Finally, oh, we got there. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, please. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And we're reading from verse 4 to 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 to 5. We can even start from 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. See that? How do we bring down every argument, every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God? By the offensive weapon, which is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. That's the reason why the remedy against the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitan was God's judgment with the sword of his mouth, the word of God. That's exactly what Phineas did in the Old Testament with the javelin, which represents the word of God. Bringing down every high thing that tried to exalt itself above the knowledge of God. Sometimes it's called uh, gnosis, you know, Secret knowledge, you know, you know what is written in the Bible is not really that. There is a secret knowledge behind. Only illuminated people have that knowledge. Now, the Bible is open to everybody. To Timothy, Paul said, the word of God which you've learned since your very childhood. A child can learn the Bible. You don't need a secret knowledge. Lies. The word of God is then the offensive sword of the spirit. In French, 2 Corinthians 6 7, in French, it speaks of offensive and defensive. In your English version, it says on the right hand and on the left hand. But in French, 2 Corinthians 6 7 says offensive and defensive weapons. 
Because some of them are defensive, like the breastplate, the true, the belt, etc., the helmet. But the word of God is offensive. One preacher said, it's even offending. We are not allowed either to add or to take anything away from the word of the prophecy of the Bible. So, it is God's narrow way and gate, or the world's wide gate and broad way. The choice is ours. You are my disciple if you abide in my word, says the Lord. There is a difference between tolerance and toleration. God bless you. Let's pray.